to Luke chapter 1, at verse 1. This is God's holy word. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And we'll end our reading there in God's word. On Thursday, I read this headline, Documents Introduced at the Emergencies Act Inquiry Will Tell Quite the Story. That was a headline Thursday morning because the Emergencies Act Inquiry began began on Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. So many people, so interested, and rightly so, in knowing for certain what happened in our country several months ago. Do you know, as I thought about that headline, in a much greater way, this morning here together, we begin an inquiry into a document that tells quite the story. I hope you'll be interested to look into these things, the things concerning Jesus Christ. The document we have is the third book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke. Gospel, again, means good news. And in the Bible, gospel is a type of writing. There are uh, letters, there are history books, but then there are gospels. We call them gospels. It's a unique type of writing. It contains factual history, but it's history that is adapted to a purpose, God's purpose of revealing his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work of his son for the salvation of his people. Lots of witnesses are going to be called in Ottawa for the inquiry into the Emergencies Act. You know, biblical law in the Old Testament required that every case be judged by two or three witnesses. Uh, You couldn't proceed just on one witness to something. Well, here in the New Testament, God has provided four witnesses to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doubled the minimum for us. Four gospel accounts. And each gospel has its own character. Three of the gospels are more similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they're called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to look with the same eye. So they have the same kind of outlook on things, the similar sort of uh, writing in the gospel. John, of course, if you're familiar with the gospel according to John, has its own character. Uh, But four gospels as witnesses to Christ. The third gospel is the longest gospel. The third gospel is the only gospel with a part two, a sequel. And that's the book of Acts. 
in the New Testament. And this third gospel has uh, some especially beautiful characteristics to it that stand out as, as you read through it and as we'll hear God's word from it. There's a great emphasis in the third gospel on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin in church history was known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit, uh, but some have called Luke's gospel the gospel of the Holy Spirit because his work is so prevalent and prominent in it. It's a gospel that highlights prayer over and over and over again. It's a gospel that focuses quite a bit, more than others, on women in the life and ministry of Christ, as witnesses to Christ. Uh, Women figure prominently in this third gospel. And there is an overriding, permeating note of joy in this third gospel. Listen for it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, David prayed. And this gospel is filled with joy. More emphatically, said one writer, than any of the other gospels, Luke's book underscores the necessity and privilege of rejoicing. Well, we come to this third gospel then this morning. So much has been written on issues that pertain to the introductory matters of this third gospel. But this morning, we are going to look very simply at three main points that arise from these four opening verses, uh, all one sentence in the original Greek language, these four verses. But these Verses as the introduction that Luke himself gives to this gospel tell us who wrote it, how it was written, and why it was written. So just very simply, the who, the how, and the why of this third gospel in the New Testament. I'm sure that most of your Bibles have the name Luke written above the third gospel. These opening verses, of course, just say I and me, just uses the pronouns. So technically, the gospel is anonymous, but most are agreed that Luke was the author of this third gospel, the same Luke that's mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4, where in verse 14, he speaks about our dear friend Luke, or more literally, beloved Luke, the doctor. Paul mentions this person in Colossians chapter 4. This Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul on many of his journeys. If you read carefully through the book of Acts, you'll see that it uh, transitions sometimes from speaking about what Paul is doing to what are called the we passages in Acts. Then we did this. Then we went there. And Luke is including himself there as the companion of Paul. Many ancient writers uh, give Luke as the author of the third gospel, Jerome, Eusebius, Origen in 250 A.D., Tertullian in 200 A.D., Irenaeus in 180 A.D., who was a disciple of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of the Apostle John, getting very close to the time that this gospel was written. Luke is a Greek name. It's Lucas in full. Uh, a Gentile, then, 
But when Paul calls him beloved Luke in Colossians 4, it identifies him as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a Gentile believer. Paul tells us he was a doctor. And so he was an educated man. Uh, Some say from Syrian Antioch. There are two Antiochs in the Bible, Pisidian Antioch and then Syrian Antioch. One early source telling us that he lived to the age of 84, but never married, had no children. So like Paul, if it's true, he was able to devote himself to kingdom labor, 1 Corinthians 7.32. But here's Dr. Luke traveling around with the Apostle Paul as Paul preached the gospel in the ancient Mediterranean world. It's perhaps not wrong to think of Luke then as the first recorded medical missionary. I'm sure that he blessed people physically with his skills as he did spiritually as well. Medical missionary, Médecin Sans Frontières, uh, the first one. He's an educated person, and that fits the kind of writing that we find in Luke Acts, the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. It's very beautiful writing. Some have tried to show that there are pieces of evidence in the gospel that would be consistent with the author being a doctor, interestingly, like uh, being so descriptive of the degree of the fever of Peter's mother uh, in Acts 4.38. So here we have beloved Dr. Luke, who wrote the first part of his two-part account of all that Jesus did and taught. And he likely wrote it in the early 60s A.D. But you know, friends, Bible-believing Christians also know that there is a greater answer to the question, who wrote this book? Or who wrote the Bible? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It comes out of the very mouth of of God. 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried by the Holy Spirit. This is the Bible's teaching about itself. Whatever people would say, this is what God himself says about this book. Real people wrote, real human beings with their own personalities in their own situations and contexts and for their own reasons. Luke says in verse 3 of chapter 1, it seemed good to me. And that's true. But at the same time, the Bible is not merely the words of men, but the very word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us The word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So, who wrote this third gospel? Carried along by the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke, the ancient medical missionary. But secondly... What does Luke say about how he wrote? How he wrote. 
Look at the words that he uses here in these first four verses. Investigate everything carefully or accurately. Orderly account. Over and over again, these types of words are used. He mentions other, many other accounts that he is drawing upon. Received, he says, from eyewitnesses and servants or ministers of the word. The things handed down to us from those who were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That almost certainly means the disciples who became the apostles. And so Luke is drawing on that firsthand apostolic witness. And he researched and investigated others who had witnessed and testified to the things, he says, that were fulfilled in those days. How Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and prophecies and promises. That's what Jesus himself will say later in Luke 24, 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So that's what Luke is, is investigating, the things that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament, the, the, the whole ocean of Old Testament tidal waving together into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Luke here is not being disparaging of other accounts that existed at the time, certainly not other Gospels, but he was adding to them as the Holy Spirit carried him along by his own careful, complete, and orderly investigation, God is providing another witness to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke carried out that investigation carefully, accurately, comprehensively. You just think of what that work must have been like. Did he go and find an old shepherd who maybe was still alive, who was there outside of Bethlehem that night, and sit down with the old man and say, what, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you do? How many hours did he sit with Mary who had pondered all those things in her heart? No doubt spoke to people who were healed. Children who were blessed. Most of all, those disciples who had spent the three years with the Lord day in and day out and all that they saw and all that they heard. Luke has done a very careful investigation here. He's been called by some a first-rate historian. He situates this gospel, he situates his writing by naming contemporary Roman rulers, Jewish leaders. In Luke chapter 3, it says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you see how he's being so careful to say exactly when this is happening? F.F. Bruce, the biblical scholar, says, a writer who thus relates his story to the wider context of world history is courting trouble. If he is not careful, he affords his critical readers so many opportunities for testing his accuracy. And Luke takes this risk and stands the test admirably. You see, just by saying all these things, you do open yourself up to someone saying, well, you said this. It's not like just saying, well, somewhere, sometime this happened. Luke is careful, and that opens it up for scrutiny, and he has been scrutinized. So often, Luke was criticized by so-called scholars who said he made mistakes in technical points in various places. But over and over and over again, new discoveries in archaeology have vindicated not the critics, but the original author, Luke. You know, in ancient times, in the first century, uh, Roman provinces were either imperial provinces or senatorial provinces. If they were imperial provinces, their rulers were called legates. If they were senatorial provinces, they were called proconsuls. And Luke gets them all right. Even when at one point he says it was one type of leader and scholars said, no, that was not that kind of province. Luke is saying it was a senatorial province. It was an imperial province. Until archaeologists discovered that for a short period of time, the province, I think it was Cyprus, was changed from being one type of province to the other. And Luke has the right name for that small window of history to which he was referring. Luke was right. The critics were wrong. Luke mentions Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. The only Lysanias scholars were aware of from ancient history was known as a king not a tetrarch, and was executed by Mark Antony in 34 BC. And so I said, Luke, you're wrong. This was no leader. There was no leader by this name, by that title, at the time you are speaking about. But evidence was later discovered in an inscription which mentions Lysanias as tetrarch, and also which records a title only given to the emperor Tiberius and his mother during their reign. Sir William Ramsey, a famous archaeologist of Asia Minor, originally believed that the book of Acts was written in the middle of the second century A.D., and so he agreed with the critics. But his archaeological discoveries forced him to renounce those critical theories. He would come to say, quote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is an historian of the first rank, In short, he should be placed along with the greatest of historians. And when we remember that it is not only the credibility of Luke that is at stake, but the credibility of the Holy Spirit himself, we can be assured of the certainty of what is recorded here. And that theme of certainty is what 
Luke himself raises thirdly when he writes about why he wrote. Who wrote? Luke. How did he write? Carefully. Why did he write? Verses 3 and 4. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's purpose, you see, in the first place was very personal. He's writing for the benefit of this man called Theophilus. People debate whether he's a real person. He's certainly a real person. He's given this title, Most Excellent Theophilus. That title was used of officials like Felix and Festus later in Acts. And so maybe he was some kind of Roman official. Maybe he was a nobleman. Uh, we don't know. But he was of some standing in society, and Luke knew him. And Luke wanted to be a blessing and a help to him. Theophilus obviously already had some knowledge of the teaching of Scripture and the life of Christ. Luke mentions the things that he had been taught. The word there literally is catechized or catechism, which isn't too well known in the world today, but uh, we have catechisms, a way to teach the truth of Scripture by question and answer. Theophilus had been catechized. Whether or not Theophilus at this point was a believer, we can't say, but we know what Luke wants for him and no doubt prayed for him, that he would know what he had been taught with certainty, with certainty. And the word certainty here is a strong one. It's the opposite. It's a Greek way to make something opposite by putting the letter A in front of something like theist, atheist. Well, here the root word is to totter or to fall. And so this is something that cannot fall. It cannot fail. We might use the word infallible. Certainty. It's a word that can also mean secure. Take guard, Pilate said. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. Same word. So it's, it's, a, it's a certainty that is secure. And it's secure with the result of being safe and experiencing peace. It's used in a negative way. You have to think through this a little bit, but it's used in a negative way in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While people are saying peace and safety, that's the same word. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Or positively in Hebrews 6, 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What a rich word this is. Certainty, security, safety, firmness. I wonder this morning if you're interested in a certainty that will bring security and safety to your lives. Lives are turned upside down. It's happened throughout human history, but it's happening in our country, in our culture, and in our society. There are people whose lives, they say, are feeling like they're adrift in the sea of all the things that are going on and all the waves that are hitting them. Well, here Luke says, I'm going to write something for this most excellent Theophilus, and it is certain, and it will provide security 
and safety. If you know these things, Theophilus. Are you interested in that kind of certainty? What a blessing certainty is, certainty is, especially when the issue is your life and your eternity. A certainty as to the remedy for sin and guilt, a prescription against sin and misery. Here it is. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples of Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Do you know that you need a remedy for sin and guilt? Well, Dr. Luke, carried by the Holy Spirit, writes what is certain about the great physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus once made fishers of men out of fishers of fish. And in Luke, Jesus made a physician of bodies in this gospel, a physician of souls, providing what makes for true health, peace, safety, in the certainty of this good news. Why do we have Luke's gospel? Luke 19.10, to tell us about Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this is the certain word about that. In a world of opinion and conflicting experts and evil schemers, here is certainty. Over and above our own feelings and experiences, which are so fickle or fleeting, here is certainty. Had a bit of a, a resolution lately to, to try to pick up the Dutch language again and just get better. I feel like I've just squandered the language that I learned growing up at home. I'm so bad at it now. And so I started watching uh, Dutch instructional videos in a particular channel on YouTube where uh, young guys go out and they just interview people on the street in Amsterdam and ask them about what's your favorite food, what makes a Dutch person stubborn, cheap, all these things. But you learn Dutch as you learn all these things. So you learn a certain vocabulary. But um, one of the episodes was just going on the streets of Amsterdam and asking people about religion, their religious life. And, and over and over again, these people would answer, young people often, uh, are you religious? And the person would say, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. And then the interviewer would say, why? And so often, almost every time, the person would say, why? I, I haven't thought about why. I guess I just grew up with it. It's just what I grew up with. didn't know what they thought or they knew kind of what they thought, but not why they thought it, why they believed it. Here is certainty that you can know what's true. Here is a certainty that unbelievers need to be confronted with. U.S. President John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. Whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. And this is what we have. Jesus Christ in history. Certainty 
the things that happened, our inclinations, wishes, or dictates of our passion notwithstanding, we have to deal with this Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know what you know about life and death and eternity? I'm sure you have some opinion about that. You just say, well, this is what I think. But and then if someone would say, why? I don't know. It's just what I've always thought. Let me ask the young people here. You've had the blessing of being catechized. You've been taught many things. But as we think about Theophilus here, so is he. So is he. Let me ask you. Do you know what you know? Do you know why you believe what you know? It's so important. That's Luke's purpose here. And it's the purpose of God and the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's a blessing to be taught, but do you know it? You know the certainty of it. That word know is used later in Luke 24, 16, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Then later it says in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. We may have the certain word of God, but our blind eyes, our hearts need to be opened. And that's what Jesus can do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The blessings of knowing the certainty of the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke desired to look into those things. So did Theophilus, obviously. Do you? Do you desire to look into these things? Yesterday, so many people came to this building. They were so inquisitive. They wanted to look into it. What's this room? What's that for? What's behind that door? They wanted every door open. We could be like that in our own lives. We can look into many things, and we should look into things. It's often a good thing to do. There are some things we should not look into. But many things we should, and it's good, and it's responsible. How about you? What do you look into? What do you love to look into? Do you look into the stock market, into nutrition labels, AI bull genetics. I have to preach to the congregation here. What do you look into? Sports statistics. And you, you never tire of looking into it. But is that all you do? Is, are those things the most important thing for you to look into? Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, 
and hear what you hear but did not hear it. And in the Gospel of Luke, we can see it and we can hear it. Things that kings long to look into. 1 Peter 10, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 13. The things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Luke wanted to look into it. Theophilus wanted to look into it. Kings wanted to look into it. Prophets wanted to look into it. Angels want to look into it. And we don't care. What's wrong with us? And I include me in that us. I can look into lots of other things for a long time, more than I look into the, the Scriptures, the Bible. Beloved, I hope that you're interested, even excited to look into Luke, to see Jesus, and by God's grace to know Jesus. Because Jesus himself prayed, this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And to know by God's grace this Jesus savingly, so that we might be called that same name, Theophilus, by faith, one who is loved by God, and one who loves God.